But it was not, as some had predicted, the end of the world. Instead, the apocalypse was simply the prologue to another bloody chapter of human history. For man had succeeded in destroying the world. But war... War never changes. In the early days, thousands were spared the horrors of the Holocaust by taking refuge in enormous underground shelters known as vaults. But when they emerged, they had only the hell of the wastes to greet them. All except those in Vault 101. For on that fateful day, when fire rained from the sky, the giant steel door of Vault 101 slid closed and never reopened. It was here you were born. It is here you will die. Because in Vault 101, no one ever enters. And no one ever leaves. Life in the Vault is about to change. This is Control Structure, episode 101, for February 10th, 2016. Hello to everyone listening. This show has notes. Visit thenexus.tv slash cs101 to see them if you are interested. I am one of the hosts of the show, Andrew Bailey, and with me today is the other host, Stephen Orvis. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Steve. So, um, yeah, it finally snowed a little. A little? So how much did you guys get? Uh, I think we might be up to about two or three inches. Not That's bad. actually more than more than we got. We got about a dusting. <laughs> so, again, you northerners without snow. Yes, so. So, um, oh yeah, like the other day there was the Superb Owl. Superb Owl? What was that? Um, it was a huge uh, football game with a whole bunch of commercials and stuff. Oh, you must be referring to the... Yeah, the Superb Owl. Oh, I see. You know, you gotta get around those copyright restrictions, you know? I um, see. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, because my grill was at Pastor's, I was sort of hoping that he would do the party. Which, uh, it came down to yes. So, I'm like, okay, I guess I will have the meat for that. And, uh, so... Uh, let's see. Y- yeah, you have not had my uh, tater tot casserole, right? I've not. I heard about it though. Yeah. So uh, instead of doing the uh, uh, sriracha sauce, what I did instead was put basil, oregano, and garlic into it instead. And uh, like that would be good. Uh, I could barely keep myself from drooling into it when I was mixing it up. It was that good. So uh, I threw that on the grill. And, uh, yeah, it looked good, and it tasted just as good. So, along Very with, nice. you know, along with uh, burgers and hot dogs and, I think, like, two chicken breasts. So, yeah, uh, apparently the secret is if you, like, put oregano, garlic, and basil and things, people think that you're a really good cook. 
So uh, is this the second time you, you've used your grill, or have you used it other times? I think this is the third time, actually, because there was New Year's, there was that little special special thingy, like, a few weeks ago, and then now. So, and, uh, yeah, everyone has liked everything that I cooked, so. Yeah, it's a good start, then. Yes. So, um... Yeah, otherwise, uh, I've been actually working on my blog a little bit. I guess I'll talk about it later in the show. Um, so, yeah, what you what were you doing Sunday night? Uh, Sunday night, I actually did not watch any bit of the Superb Owl. I actually was went to church, and then after church, I had something I had to go get in uh, away from home, and I ran up there to go get it quick because I knew the snow was coming Monday night, and I didn't want to be out driving as more than I had to Monday night. So yeah, totally missed it. Raspberry? Raspberry? Raspberry! So, uh, Andrew, what do you think about garlics? Garlic? Garlic is delicious. Garlic. Garlic. Okay, so for the Whovians, uh, that know what a garlic is, apparently you can make yourself a garlic. And, uh, so the background on what a garlic is, uh, Doctor Who is a TV show that has time travel and such in it. And, uh, one of the favorite villains in the TV show is a robotic thing called a Dalek that actually has some creature inside. They are famed for running around with a gun, blasting people, and saying, exterminate. So this uh, guy, he uh, decided to build a lawnmower and out of the Raspberry Pi, and so he built the base, and he come along with the realization that he could put a top on it and make it into a Dalek. Uh, so apparently he can control it now with like wireless keyboard and drive it around and stuff. And he has like 20 sounds, I think, that he can make it say, including, of course, exterminate. Uh, sounds like so far he's used it uh, for Halloween. I guess he had fun scaring people, <laughs> driving up behind him and making it talk and such. Uh, long term, though, it sounds like he is still going for the mowing thing, which yeah. I think is kind of neat to have a robot out mowing your lawn. That would be really entertaining. So, yeah, that's interesting use of a Raspberry Pi. Very good use of it. Yeah, it's... Uh... It didn't seem like he had uh, quite finished the lawn mowing feature yet. No, that looked like that was the penny. It seems like the, the whole Dalek thing kind of got him sidetracked, and he yeah. was having fun with that first. Hey, you know, that's that's how things go, man. Just run with it. Yeah. So, uh, now for this episode's Lull Apple. <laughs> Tim Cook, uh, which... Uh, for those of you who don't know, is the current CEO of Apple. Uh, and probably like a lot of the local rich folks, went uh, to see the superb owl in person. He took a photo that was super blurry, supposedly from an iPhone. So much for being the best thing ever. So, yeah, this thing is 
kind of atrocious. Yeah, it it probably would have had some attention, but I was reading the other article you found there. It says that he deleted it like right away, and yeah. then as soon as that happens, people are like, "Oh, why did you delete that?" <laughs> and I, the point the article that article was making was if he just left it be and like posted another one or something, like people wouldn't really notice. But yeah. uh, he brought attention to himself. Yeah, but this is a bad picture though. But yeah, it's a phone. Right, and it's not a. This is kind DLSLR of DSLR or anything like that. Yeah, that's why I bought my uh, fancy Nikon camera. So exactly. Yeah, it's it's designed to take really good pictures, and it costs five hundred dollars, and those are beautiful pictures. So we, get what uh, we paid for. Yeah, so it's that time of year again. Review your Google security settings and get an extra two gigabytes of storage. So, um, yeah, it looks like both of us have, uh, you know, reviewed our settings. You know, pretty much asks you, uh, you know, like what your recovery numbers are. Like if you have two-factor authentication enabled. Um, like what is logged into your Google account right now. And like a few other things, but that's the basic gist of it. I also liked how it showed any connected services with your account, like if you use it to log into other websites or something. Uh, so it was kind of nice seeing what all is tied in. It's good seeing a company being somewhat transparent about that and not like hiding it under the rug. And so they're like, hey, take a look, make sure it's still what you want want to be shared. And it also, uh, let's see, it also had you review your application-specific passwords. Uh, apparently, I still had Google Talk in there. That was actually a pretty good app. So, uh, were you about to say something there? Well, when you said that, that triggered in my mind that I, I had... It was actually the... I have a VoIP phone thing, and that's one of the, the allowed devices that's connected to I thought at first you were going for that, but it was something different. No, it was like the little uh, instant messenger client that they had, I don't know, 10 years ago. Oh, and the, that one? Yeah. I actually used that. That yeah. was a long time ago. Yeah, and I kept using it constantly up until they discontinued it like two years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I, I never... I, I used it at first when it came out, and it was okay. But then I was like, yeah, you can do it on the website just as well. And I don't want to leave it logged in on like the community computer at my house. And so it was better just to use it through the web browser and not have like my stuff annoying everyone else. Well, uh... My uh, thing was just the opposite in that I didn't necessarily want my browser open at all times. So, like, whenever I would get an email, it would pop up that, you know, you got, you know, the subject line and, like, maybe a little excerpt and who it was from. Like, I found that legitimately useful. So, um, and, like, I used that for, I don't know, like, seven or eight years or so. Like, I it was so good that I kept the instant installer file like on my server so like whenever i got a new computer or reinstalled or something i would have it there so, so apparently even though you have the installer google just doesn't let you sign into the app anymore um i don't know they might have turned off the server or something which like they you know of course you know said hey we're going to be shutting this down like months in advance so like whenever that day came i probably deleted that installer okay but today is International Backup Awareness Day, so back up all your stuff, even your obsolete installers, if you want to. 
Um, so, uh, hey, speaking about Gmail and stuff, Google is adding UI signals to notify users that they are about to send mail over an unencrypted connection. And if it came from an unauthenticated server, it will show a question mark in the, uh, like the user photo area. So I think overall, this is a good thing in that, you know, it'll show you that definitely when things aren't exactly secure. So, like, I wonder how many uh, spam messages will, like, throw all these unauthenticated unauthenticated flags. So, I, I know Google has been doing a similar thing. I've noticed with eBay and PayPal. It'll have, like, it'll stick, like, I think it may even be in the upper right-hand corner. It'll stick, like, their logo in it. And it'll be like, hey, this is actually from PayPal. That way you can uh, somewhat more trust things. As long yeah. as Google always gets that right and they can't figure a way out to fake that though that's the trick yeah um so like again you were like sort of you know having a little bit of concerns there but uh you know again it sort of operates like the uh, little green lock in your url bar except in reverse because it warns you when things are not secure i see instead of warning you when it is secure got it yeah took me a second in reverse okay so Hey, uh, do you want fancy tooltips on your website? Well, uh, you can, and uh, it's pretty, well, I wouldn't say pretty easy, but there is a way to do it with just CSS and, like, adding classes onto uh, elements. So, you know, this is, like, one of the things that I like. You know, it's it doesn't not have JavaScript. It uses, you know, the base features of, you know, CSS and other things. And it has like nice fancy swishing animations to it. You see that there? Yeah, it, it is very nice. I like the simplicity of it. Just in uh, like at the bottom there, it shows how to use it. You just add your uh, reference and it's showing how to, how it works. It's uh, very well put together. It looks like. Yeah. So like you don't need to have any kind of fancy JavaScript to bog your page down even more. So which is something that I love. So VLC, how much do you like that? I've used VLC for like forever. Yeah, I've I might have been using VLC longer than I've been using Google Talk, <laughs> or or rather, I was using VLC before I was using Google Talk. Yeah, it I, is. It's pretty much the Swiss Army knife of like video. It is because lots of times, like a video that won't play on any other, like if you don't have the right. Uh, Codex installed VLC will still play it. Yeah, and I don't know how exactly they make it all happen, but they do, which is really nice. Yeah, it. I have come across a rare video that it won't play, but generally it's it's good for that. And I'm pretty sure that's because of the uh, FFmpeg library that is underneath of all of it. So. And it also functions as a somewhat decent music player. Like, you can just, like, drop a playlist in it, and it will go. And one other feature that you never, ever, ever see in a uh, commercial video player is, uh, do you know on the front of a DVD how it gives you the FBI warning? It says, you know, you need a fine and this and that. You can skip through that in VLC. You can just skip it. Yeah. A normal video player will not let you skip that. I know. It's awesome. It is. So, I mean, it technically circumvents the DRM, so this is in complete violation of the law. 
the DMCA law that is, which is, is kind of do are they required to uh, show the screen and not let you skip it? I take it. Um, no, it's technically an licensed player, and it okay. does its own uh, little decryption thing that uh, like isn't exactly sanctioned by any uh, like movie studio or anything. So basically, that little bit of code that when you install Linux, they say, "Hey, we can't actually distribute this to you." But if you want to watch DVDs, just run the script and DVDs will magically start working. Yeah, exactly. So I yes. wonder I wonder when that same functionality will land for Blu-rays. Because like there there are programs, I think the one that I prefer is called Make MKV, which will actually rip Blu-rays for you. So apparently it's possible then. It's maybe just a matter of time before they implement something. Yeah. I thought before, uh, for VLC, it would be kind of neat to have a plug-in. You know, like, uh, for movies and stuff, how they have, like, uh, sometimes a plug-in for VHS tape, like, to filter boards out and stuff? I thought before it would be nice for VLC. You could probably do a plug-in for that. Since it's open source, yeah. you probably could come up with something. Just watch your closed caption there, and when it hits that spot, just mute it quick and then unmute it. Yeah. Of course, that often ends up being hilarious, because everyone knows what's being said. If you have closed captions on, then it's obvious. You have to turn closed captions off for that to work. But yeah, I've, I've seen that before where they're, they mute it, but then the closed captions shows it anyways, and it's like, there wasn't any point. You just showed it. <laughs> so, uh, remember Let's Encrypt, right? Yes, I do. So You uh, apparently did that on your blog recently. Yes, and um, I guess next time you're here, uh, I will do the uh, key-changing ceremony or certificate changing ceremony or something. But uh, apparently Amazon wants to get get in on the uh, free certificate bandwagon, but it looks like it's only for apps hosted on Amazon. Of course. So, I mean, you know, granted, you know, that's kind of bad, but uh, like if they're integrating it into their platform, that's good. So like all that you really need to do is like click a button and like everything's done for you. Making it easy to go. I saw a web host, DreamHost. Uh, recently, I saw an email from them, and they're like, "Hey, let's encrypt this here. If you want to like turn it on, just go to your account and click this button, and it'll just start working." And so they made it like super easy. You just click the button, and it works. So I think this is going to be a trend, hopefully, of people being like, "We set it up. All you do is click the button, and it's going." Yeah, that's exactly what uh, is the point of Let's Encrypt. Yes. So it's going the direction they wanted. Yes. So uh, speaking of, uh, you know, certificates and whatnot, uh, have you ever seen those SSL site seals at the bottom of some pages? Yes. And then I've seen it on the scam sites that want you to give them something or another. Yeah. So just because of that, it is an anti-pattern, you know, because users will be used to trusting an image on a website not the tools that tell and prove to them that this stuff is secure. It is. I, I have always been, if I see a website that's splattered in them, you start distrusting the website. If you're like, want to be that obvious about telling me that your website is secure and safe, it's like, I don't know now, because you just made a really big point of telling me that it's secure. So, and uh, simple uh, has come to this conclusion, but... Uh, Another thing that's interesting is that, like, it adds clutter and cognitive load to your web page. 
And this might actually be useful for me because in the example here, they show a checkout website with like a credit card form. And like it essentially says that the form without all the little icons and seals and stuff actually gets more people to check out through that. Which makes sense if it's not confusing that it's easier to use. So the, uh, let's see, if I recall this, that they said that they technically will offer them if people ask for them, but they don't, like, actually have... They they don't push it on them. Yeah. I found it it interesting. They were talking, like, motivation for why would you have this seal on there. And one point they made was it actually gives the certificate authority backlinks to their website. Yeah. So it helps them the Google rating. So it's like... So that's why probably people were doing it in the first place. Just a free advertisement. Because, you know, to have their name on it or something. So it's basically advertising for that certificate authority. Yeah, just uh, giving them the Google juice. Yep. So um, apparently one of the guys that uh, run Let's Encrypt um, apparently have been asked for these seals as well. Uh, says here, we considered introducing a site seal because it's a common request, but we've decided not to do it for reasons similar to many in this post. And then I replied, don't do it. I want Let's Encrypt to do what it's supposed to, which is free automated certificates and let other tools rate how good it is. Um, Apparently seven other people liked this, at least, because uh, my comment here has eight points. There you go. Pretty high up on the comment chain, too. Well, yeah, that's because I piggybacked off of the number one. Oh, okay. So, uh, hey, speaking about uh, encryption and everything, uh, have you? do you know what the term going dark is? Uh, so going dark apparently is a reference to uh, how thieves and everyone and terrorists are all using encryption and we can't phone tap them and find out what they're going to do. Exactly. It is essentially the boogeyman that, you know, people like the FBI and apparently only a few people in the NSA um, are really afraid of that, you know, essentially we won't be able to gather intelligence because like all the iPhones and Androids and OMG are encrypted. Oh my. Um, But as it turns out, and uh, especially with the, uh, like the Paris attacks investigation, that that's not happening. You know, terrorists use uh, SMS just like every other teenage girl does. And, you know, that's not encrypted. So, like, essentially, again, they want a bigger haystack to find the needle. But, you know, that's a whole other thing. So, you know, it's, they essentially use what everyone else does. And SMS is kind of widely used and uh you know again because terrorists tend to be kind of poor they can't afford things like iphones so So one thing that's interesting it seems like the security experts seem more worried about protecting against using the encryption than terrorists and people like that seem worried about uh encrypting stuff I mean, even like a lot of mass shootings and stuff you hear them oh they posted their facebook page like the day before or it's it's pretty exactly. common for for there to be warning signs before something happens. Like isn't it's sometimes it is secret, but lots of times there was stuff in plain sight that everybody missed, um, or they missed, but you know people could not do anything fast enough. True. 
So um, our good friend Bruce Shiner, our encryption expert, uh, essentially, uh, he was actually one of the uh, people who were who was on this report that actually signed it. Um, so he essentially boils it down to a few points. End-to-end encryption and other technological architectures for obscuring data are unlikely to be adopted ubiquitously by companies because the majority of businesses that provide communications rely on access to user data for revenue streams and for product functionality, including data recovery should the password be forgotten. Uh, Another point, software ecosystems tend to be fragmented. In order for encryption to become both widespread and comprehensive, far more coordination and standardization than currently exists will be required. Networked sensors and the Internet of Things are projected to grow substantially, and get this, this has the potential to dramatically change surveillance. These still images, video, and audio captured by these devices may enable real-time interception and recording with after-the-fact access. Thus, an inability to monitor an encrypted channel could be mitigated by the ability to monitor from afar a person through a direct uh, different channel, uh, which is... You know, kind of important for the Internet of Things because, like, a lot of those are currently made by fly by night companies who like want to get product to market fast. I I listened to a talk once. I forget where the conference was, but that's what the guy was talking about with the Internet of Things. Everyone's building these really amazing products, but very few people are thinking of the security, and so there's a lot of gaps that are being made and so so it will be an issue an up-and-coming issue as that matures so you probably have your bubble burst at some point in time so and also metadata is not encrypted and the vast majority is likely to remain so the one thing uh in the article there you said about like companies and having ways to recover passwords and things when things are lost reminded me once uh my work laptop a good while back, they decided, oh, everyone's laptop has to be encrypted. So they encrypted mine. And then, of course, I went on vacation. And what happens when you go on vacation? You forget it. You forget your password. That's right. I think it happened to you. It always, you always have to change your password like a two days before you go on vacation, too. That makes it even worse. Because <laughs> I just changed it. And I'm going on vacation for like a week. So, of course, I'm not going to remember my password. Because you won't let me use the same one that I used 10 years ago or whatever. Anyways. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so you forget the passwords. I I call it up. Uh, I the IT from my company, and they're like, "Sure, just type in this code into the the because it's like a boot level password you have to type in. They're like, just type in this code, and then it unlocks it, and it just unlocks it. So it's like, wow, oh, that was actually really secure. <laughs> you just need the code. So, so I mean, imagine it's something on the server. Like probably each machine has a unique code, but still, that there is a code there. It's there's other ways in than my password. So uh, I believe I mentioned uh, that I encrypted my work laptop also, uh, and that's been working well. And also the uh, external hard drive that I use with it, because I'm running Windows 10 Professional on that. And because Microsoft decided to actually make saner decisions, they don't have a, well, I was going to say they don't have a billion editions of Windows 10 because they actually do. It's just that normal people can only buy two editions. So uh, Windows Pro being the uh, higher end one, which I always thought, which I always thought the, which does have the encryption on it. I always thought the different Windows versions were, was kind of shady. 
it's like, oh, you can't join into a domain, and then it's like, well, if it's a normal user, they probably didn't care anyways, or, or I remember the XP, I think, was more bad for is certain features weren't there in the control panel, and is this, like, uh, I don't know. Well, XP has the same model, Home and Pro, uh, as does Windows 10, and I think Windows 8. Um, it was just with Windows Vista that they released, I don't know, like, five, uh, you know, additions to sell. So, and, uh, yeah, that was just weird, which, you know, Anyways, for, for as much crap as Vista gets, it wasn't that bad. At least it wasn't after they got over the driver issues, it wasn't too bad. Yeah. Anyways, I'll be booting back into Ubuntu later. Oh, so yeah, this is like the first podcast in a while that you're not running Ubuntu. Yeah, I, I guess I was thinking I might play Tanks a little bit tonight, so I put it into Windows today. Uh, but I've been running Ubuntu very consistently because I think it's going to be a much better operating system. Oh, incidentally, uh, I'll stick it later in the podcast. Okay. So, uh, you know, along with uh, terrorists maybe using encryption or not, I guess that encryption is kind of hard when you're anti-establishment. The encryption application that ISIS uses turns out to not exist. What does exist is a small demonstration of a messaging application that seems like an elementary school project. So, like, apparently at some point this was, uh, uh, like, supposed to have encryption features, but it doesn't. And it looks like it's been around for a while and has not been updated or anything. And it looks pretty ugly. Yeah. I think the app was more of a joke, just looking at it, like, (laughs) you you seriously didn't take any thought into it. Like, they surely, in amongst all the people that are terrorists, could have found one programmer that actually knew how to program and could have made something decent. It's just, uh, I I don't, if there is such an app, they obviously aren't putting it out on the internet someplace for people to find it. Well, But it is interesting, as soon as they uh, was... It was in the news, suddenly people wanted it. Yeah, the the reporter here actually dug down pretty deep and, uh, like, actually contacted security people in the Middle East, and, like, they really could not find this rumored encryption application, like, with actually those features in it. So, yeah, the app was built by in, or rather, the app was built in MIT's App Inventor, a plug-and-play tool meant primarily for children. A watermark-style line automatically inserted by the app inventor is in the code. It appears to contain simple Bluetooth file transfer button with a range of about 30 feet. It's a function that pretty much all phones have anyway, but there's nothing to indicate that encrypted messages were ever part of the app's functionality. I was talking about in the article, too, comparing that app with some other app that apparently, uh, I forget what the terrorist group uses, one of the other terrorist groups, and it says that how... They figured there's different authorship because that app had real code written in it, whereas this app was like no custom code. So the guy that did it like didn't even know how to code, probably. Yeah. So uh, an NSA employee has detailed how to secure your stuff from the NSA. Mostly, it's be careful and judicious about what's allowed in, who can access what, what can be connected, and don't be socially engineered. It was a big deal of what he was talking about was uh, just 
from a network perspective, like actually paying attention and doing common sense things like checking logs or like segregating your network, the important parts out. Yeah. And he even said that apparently they've had times when they've told a company that, hey, you have these security problems, you should probably fix them. And they come back a few years later and the same flaws were still there and people like didn't care. Yeah. Or they somehow were uh, uh, absolutely required for the functioning of the company, which, I mean, come on, that's probably why. Probably. I feel like a lot of companies are going to be like that. Is You have IT trying to please the people in the company and try to make things happen. And it's the flip side, too. Like He's talking about locking down the computers and whitelisting programs and... I know for me at work, anytime they lock down my computer a little bit more, it's really annoying. And it's like, seriously, why did you do that to me? I need this. And it's it's bad when they lock it down, at least for developers, it's bad. And But the flip side is the security risks that it, it does bring. Yeah. appreciate uh so i was popped up in i was in linux the other day of course and i popped open steam just kind of see what was in there and i think previously i had just had portal one there uh but i noticed that suddenly tf2 team fortress 2 was available for download and the latest the portal 2 was there as well so i thought that was kind of nice that to see the whole Steam OS thing kind of maturing a little bit more. I, I did some articles trying to find someone noticing the release of TF2. I didn't really see it. I saw someone uh, raging against Steam for not having TF2 on Linux. So apparently it might be somewhat new. Um, uh, actually, I hate to burst your bubble, but okay. pretty much whenever uh, uh, Steam, or not Steam, but rather Valve decided, okay, let's go to Linux with all this stuff, like Team Fortress 2 and Portal 2, were like the first ones. Was the Portal 1 that was later? I remember one of the portals was available and the other one wasn't. No, both of them are Valve. Okay. Um, Anyways. But yeah, like Portal 2 was like one of the was like one of the very first ones and like the original one came like a little while later. Okay. So maybe that's what it was is the Portal 2 is what I was remembering because I remember one or the other was and the other one wasn't available and yeah that's that's probably what okay, it was so that yeah. must be the order of what it was but anyways uh since it apparently last time i looked which was a very long time ago because i don't normally open up steam and linux they did have more games up so it was impressive seeing that uh that list of uh linux games i'd seen that the other day i was googling around they didn't really have other well-known games it seems it seems like most of the other stuff is just like these I don't want to call them junky, but like independent I don't know, just, games. Yeah, the, just independent games that, or maybe too mainstream. But it is. It does seem like it's still happening. And I was looking up about the different hardware and stuff, and you can buy pre-built uh, Linux Steam OS machines and stuff. I'd say it's still an up-and-coming thing. So I was yeah. seeing TF2 and Linux. 
uh, made me feel like we're making progress in the whole Linux and games thing. Yeah, um, that's that's been out for quite a while too. But um, you know, it's essentially you know all of these uh, you know independent games that are available on Linux that made me want to run Linux on my laptop with integrated graphics. Um, I also have a very low-end GeForce in there, but uh, it turns out that, what is it, the Optimus, uh, NVIDIA Optimus stuff is still kind of sketchy in Linux. Uh, like, if you can get it working, you have to, like, essentially log out in order to do it. Oh, okay. So it's, like, really painful to get it starting. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why the X server needs to die right now. Yeah. Okay. There's definitely work that needs done with making graphics work with Linux because the whole it's like that that's your meshing point with open source, non open source, and that seems to be the problem so many times is you don't get that community support and they want to keep it proprietary and so kinda messes with that at that point in time. So, um hey, I was starting to uh, mention this, but uh uh over the past, I don't know, two weeks or so, I've been optimizing my blog a little bit. So, you know, I noticed that even at work, it took maybe about a second or so for my uh, homepage to load. Uh, whereas, uh, like, in, uh, that was in Firefox. In Chrome, it was more like 600 milliseconds. But I was thinking about, you know, what can I do to get that down even further? Uh, so uh, I decided to fire up the uh, profiler uh, last night and uh, make a few uh, changes. Uh, so, because I uh, use uh, Java EE to do everything, it turns out that EJBs are pretty expensive to look up. If you want to create unmanaged objects that need EJB access, make an inner class to an object that already has the references needed. Uh, for example, I have a helper class called Index Fetcher that figures out and gives you page N of category X. I have this other class called State Cache that has sort of middle-layer logic dealing with articles and categories. It seemed like a good fit to have this class be an inner class, and as a bonus, eliminate the EJB lookups needed for each index vector instantiation, because it needs access to the database EJBs. So, like, um, I'm not exactly sure what the uh, .NET equivalent of an EJB is. Uh, that would... That was the part I was trying to understand. Uh, you may have said said what it was, and I missed it at the beginning because someone came in the room. Uh, uh, did you? They're called Enterprise Java Beans. Okay. Um, they're uh, really useful for like transactional stuff. Um, but I kind of like them because they support dependency injection. And, oh, nice. And they like manage all your singletons and sessions and stuff. It's uh, pretty nice features there. So uh, another thing that I noticed is uh, allocate string builders with expected sizes of the strings to be built from them. So this is, you know, instead of concatenating, you just allocate this long array and then fill it with the strings that you want. And, you know, it dynamically resizes and stuff. Mm. But string builders are instantiated with 16 characters by default. Um or if you decide to say, okay, well, I want you to have, like, this string in it initially, it only adds another 16 characters to it. That's not exactly good if you're going to have 100-plus characters in them eventually. 
So like you're just going to be burning cycles, you know, resizing the uh, the internal array on your string builder. So uh, were you able to, in your code? Did you have many places that you found where you knew what the final size would be, more or less, and was able to apply this optimization? So uh, let's see. I have the uh, link to my article URL class. Uh, so uh, let's see. Where was that? Uh, yeah, it was. It's in the do tag method, like sort of right near the top. Yes. That uh, I believe I had some code in there that would that tried to calculate the average of like all the runs that it would do, uh, and also the maximum number. But I don't think that I implemented it quite right. But uh, even still, it gave me a good idea of what the lengths of the final string would be. So it seemed that it would top out at about 150. So I uh, made it instantiate with 200, uh, the string builder with a capacity of 200 initially. So hopefully it should never have to resize that. I see. So you did a best guess there based on what typically you use anyway. So you're not really using too much extra memory in the times when it undersizes because most of the time it's actually going to be about the right size. Exactly. So, so did you do any benchmarking to see if that helped, or did you do a holistic benchmarking against everything? So what I essentially did was I opened it, opened uh, the profiler, and then uh, like after it all got uh, like warmed up a little bit, I decided to clear the uh, profile data, then just hit my blog just constantly. And you know, mind you, this is on my uh, Sandy Bridge i7 and not my uh, slower server. But, uh, you know, it still gave me a good idea of, you know, where uh, time was being spent. So, like, after all of these, you know, uh, like these top two things, like, yes. did, did not even appear in the top, I don't know, like 20 uh, methods by time. So, you know, it was it felt pretty good to, uh, like, not spend a good amount of time looking up EJBs and resizing string builders. So uh, another trick, uh, another optimization trick is I decided to set some database indexes, like especially for my uh, articles, because I have maybe 300 or so, uh, like somewhere between 200 and 300. Uh, so try to figure out what not primary key columns that you query on and make an index for each of them. It's better to have more than you need, probably. I'm not sure how much of an impact this made since my entire database is probably less than 10 megabytes in total. So, you know, essentially the index is, you know, sort of a shortcut for your queries. Uh, Postgres automatically makes an index for primary keys. So, and, uh, but what I was searching on for, uh, like that index fetcher was searching on uh, article date and category which are not primary IDs. So like having a uh, index for both of them, and I might go back and uh, add uh, another index for both of them together. Um, that would seem to make sense if you query both of them at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I also did this a few weeks ago, uh, but I made my bulk import feature use about three transactions total instead of one for each article, each comment, and each file. So, you know, with that, you know, it's not, you know, it doesn't burn cycles, you know, trying to open and uh, commit transactions all the time. Uh, probably about, I don't know, like 300 to 400 on a full import. 
So, so like, did your import speed speed up quite a bit? Oh yeah, like dramatically. Uh, like I'm not exactly sure like how much caching was involved, but afterwards, instead of taking about I don't know eight seconds, it takes about two, if that. It, it seems like transactions in databases are a big deal. Like opening, closing them, like doing that whole trips to the database is a big time saver if you can cut them out. So what I essentially did was I modified my uh, EJB API instead of taking like a single article, take a list of articles instead. Or, there you go. Or was it, uh, was it a map of articles, I think? Because uh, I found out, again, that linked hash maps rule. So like essentially my map is like this article ID should be like this article object in the database. Uh, so with a linked hash map, like what it'll do is it guarantees the iteration order of like when you put that in. And I actually had to write a uh, method that would reverse those um, because apparently in my RSS feeds, when I back them up, I have the newest one first. But if you want to want to like keep the canonical order, you want to use the oldest one first. So... Uh, another thing is that I use regex way more often. Some allege that it causes more problems, but I feel that there are times when a regex is legitimately warranted and makes things better, like parsing a URL and getting pieces out of it. So, uh, in other words, if you go to my blog and say, look at an individual article, andrewbailey.com slash article slash 176 slash Feliz Navidad, like, I need some sort of a method to pull out that 176 because that's the ID of the article underneath. So a regex is a good tool for that. I think it's cleaner than doing something like a split on slashes and then picking the nth one or something like that. That can be, when you see code like that, it might be faster, but it, it looks messier to me. Yeah, and that's what I was doing, by the way. It's faster. It it might very well be, but it's a horrible thing Messy. to maintain. It is, yeah. And and I sort of hate to say this, but it, you're kind of clearer when you use a regex. I I, th I think that's very true in a lot of cases. I mean, regex can be very very complex and tough to understand, but it's way easier to understand one line that just does regex than this complex for each that does something magical in it. Yeah. Instead, you can just take the regex and play with it in a regex engine and make, oh, that's what it does. Yeah. So I also use sub-resource integrity uh, for my CSS, my fat CSS file, that is. Uh, I already had that hash lying around for the e-tag header. Uh, so if you uh, look at, uh, do a view source on any of my pages, uh, about line seven, you'll see my style sheet. And... Uh, in that tag, you'll see a an uh, integrity attribute on that tag. So uh, I already had that uh, uh, hash lying around, uh, so I found another if hacky use for it. Um, so what that integrity basically does is it tells the browser, okay, once you get this, the uh, hash of this should be this value. And if it is, you're good. And if it doesn't match... Do not use this. It works for uh, CSS and uh, JavaScript, but uh, the intentions are to make it useful for images and other resources as well. 
uh, like audio and video assets. Um, it's... So another thing is I also generate a base 60, some base 64 uh, based on the last update time, and I use it for a URL parameter. This way, I can tell browsers to cache the crap out of the CSS file, not change the file name, and yet update it as frequently as needed, and the browsers will automatically uh, uh, get the new file. I was I was seeing that stack overflow question there. That it seems like a really nice trick because I've played with a website before where they had some in between server that was doing caching. So, like, you change the CSS file and then start pulling your hair out as to why it's not actually working on the website. Then you realize 10 minutes later, it's like, it was caching it. So, in fact, even if you look on uh, Stack Overflow, uh, look at their style sheet in their uh, source, you can see that they do exactly the same thing. They append a uh, uh, parameter onto that CSS URL. Uh, about line 27. 27. Oh, there we go. Yes. Which is a, a very neat trick. So Definitely one I'll have to keep in mind. <laughs> that is the worst. When you're trying to modify a CSS file and it's just not updating. Yeah. Um, let's see. Another thing is that you can actually change the actual like file name itself. Uh, That's but... true. It would be a different... But, uh, like, it's kind of hard to do that. Like, the way that my blog is set up, that's, uh, like, it sort of comes out of a, uh, like, a resource area. So, like, it always points to this name, and then the, uh, that URL gets dynamically inserted. Okay. You'd have to mess with the, the resource name, then tell it to yeah. somehow inject in that name. Which would just suck. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a good solution to to do the way that this that is done. So, um, like, it's sort of interesting how I uh, come up with. <clears throat> excuse me. It's sort of interesting how I come up with my caching. Uh, so, like inside, I tell it to uh, like the original value is one left shifted by thirty, which comes out to about one billion some. Uh, so, like two to the thirty. So that's one billion. And whatever binary, mm. um, which in milliseconds comes out to roughly 12 and a half days, which is a pretty good uh, length of time to cache something that's not crazy. So like I do like some bit twiddling in order to get like the middle 24 bits or something of that. And that's what I use for the base 64. I guess I'm just sitting here thinking through uh, cache times. So if you have an identifier to know when it expires, so now you know if it needs updated or not, what's the compelling reason to keep something longer than, you know, say your 12 days or whatever? I guess it's space really on the client machine? Yeah. Um, of course, the client can do whatever it wants to. You know, True. It's free to uh, request as much as it likes. Um, so the I, I guess the idea of that is like the browser ideally will not ask the server if this resource has been updated for however long you uh, specify. Um, of course, you know, the browser might hang on to it longer than that. And if so, it can send, okay, I have the one that was last modified at this time with this uh, E tag on it. Has it changed? And the server can say, no, go ahead and keep using it. 
So I think that that's a really good way to uh, identify as long as that tag gets updated because that pretty much... It I guess what I'm driving at is it almost eliminates the need for a time limit if you, you're somehow uniquely identifying each change. Yeah. So, but at some point, you know, I'm like, oh no, uh, like I didn't mean to update that quite that way. Uh, otherwise, I'd have to like change the file name, which yeah. at, at some point, like my little file name Nazi goes off my head. Like, what are you doing? That's not pure. <laughs> <laughs> file name Nazi. So, so like, you know, like essentially, well, you know, you know, remember to essentially leave it alone for about two weeks, then change it back. Okay. So, but yeah, fun times in uh, cash adventures stuff. So uh, we don't have any podcast feedback this week, but if you would like to send us feedback, uh, you can go ahead and do so on the nexus.tv. In fact, if you're looking at our show notes, there's a link to the side there that says submit feedback. And uh, as mentioned, today is International Backup Awareness Day, so back up your blog and uh, your obsolete installer files as well. So, uh, and just before uh, recording this, I made sure to update my GitHub repository uh, with my uh, blog engine. Who is it? Uh, the guy that wrote uh, the Linux kernel? He's... Uh... Forget something about backup something, or that just push it up on the internet, and let everyone have it. Yeah, yeah. Real men Good use f uh, like push out their uh, backups to the public and let them back it up. Yes, which you know works if your greatest work ever is the you know Linux kernel. Yeah. So he wrote Git too. That I'm, too. I'm like, well, at least he initially started uh, the work he, on he Git. He started it. Yeah. I always love the story with that. He's like, uh, whatever he, they were using on the kernel, he's like, this just doesn't work. I'm going to take a week off and build something better. And he built well, it and did starting one in like a week. I, let's see, if I remember, uh, like they were using like some proprietary source control and like they decided to like revoke the uh, nonprofit use for it, like the free nonprofit oh, use. Okay. That's what, you know, inspired him to do that so i heard it was performance issues too like just keeping track of the files but that, it could have been a combination like if your license is being revoked that's gonna make a slope or make a pretty quick deciding factor uh, which would explain why he actually took a week off to do it instead of just doing it on the side well i mean i guess the kernel probably was a side project anyways but <laughs> well maybe <laughs> maybe initially so according to wikipedia Git development began in April 2005 after many developers gave up access to BitKeeper, a uh, proprietary source control system that had been previously used to maintain the project. The copyright holder of BitKeeper had withdrawn free use of the product after claiming that someone had reverse engineered the protocol. So, you know, essentially along with, uh, you know, Linus claiming that everything sucks with a whole bunch of swearing attached. <laughs> He decided to do this. Um, a development of Git began April 3rd, 2005. Uh, let's see. Torvalds turned over maintenance on July 2005 uh, to a major contributor to the project. So uh, I think there might have been another note here that, like, in spring uh, and early summer of 2005, 
that uh, development on the kernel kind of slowed down a little. Get, I, I was just reading uh, about how they were talking about the actions and the speed to he was part of his requirements was to be quick. And I was thinking about work. We've been kind of experimenting with using it on some pretty large projects. And it does, if you have like thousands and thousands and thousands of files, it can slow down. But it still does pretty amazingly well for what it for what it is. Yeah, it's a matter of seconds to handle deal with those thousands and thousands of files. So uh, another thing. Um, so back in my first job, um, I believe we used it was like some IBM thing, um, uh, IBM Rational something. Never heard of it. Yeah, it's a uh, a big enterprisey thing that like you actually need to pay people just to like keep it up and running, which if you need people to just maintain your source control system, you're doing it wrong. I agree. The, that's the power of the git is you can just start using it. The decentralized yeah. approach to it is very powerful. So like it was like pretty rooted into the uh, Windows XP that we were using at the time, such that changing domains pretty much broke it. That's terrible. Yeah, like changing the Windows domain. Um, yes. Uh, let's see. And the Eclipse plugin that we were using for it would like to lock the project files, uh, like the dot .project files, the metadata uh, for the IDE, um, which was a problem because it did not tell you that it did that. You would have to like manually go into the external tool and say, like release the lock on this file. Um, because, uh, also the merge and like rebasing, uh, uh, methods of this, uh, was, well, excuse me, but they're a real pain in the ass. Um, because again, like every, every file had to be unlocked in like all these branches. Wow. That would be terrible. Um, this is especially painful when like one of the guy who's developing on this branch, like left for vacation this morning. (laughs) Then you have to find someone with rights to unlock it. Or, like, call him and, like, wait however long it takes for him to, like, get back to his machine. <laughs> See, that's that's the thing I don't... Because we use TFS mostly at work. At least uh, some of the teams do. And that's always the annoying thing with that is, well, if uh, it's locked, I can't do my thing, even though my thing maybe doesn't even touch yours. There's good reasons to be locked. But yeah. still, at the same time, it's like you're stopping me from doing the thing that I need to do by locking it on me. So... You know, essentially, like, merging branches and code bases and stuff was a real pain. Uh, whereas, like, Git, it happens, like, every three seconds. Yes, and it's designed that way. Yeah. And it gets you even used to it, and it makes it so easy that you don't dread it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, I think that might conclude our rant on source control systems. I think so. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Let's see, so you said you will be back in town in two weeks? Uh, that is hopefully the plan. Uh, the project got a bit crazy. There were some deadlines. Uh, we had to get some software out uh, before the deadline so they could test it and give it to the client, hopefully. So uh, they decided it was better to get the stuff done that needed done up 
by the deadline of post following normal sprint cycles. So we did that. And hopefully we get somewhat normal-ish after this week sometime. And hopefully back into town in the two weeks. Chris, I, was, I texted Chris some too. And it uh, sounded like he was interested in maybe meeting up to do something. So perhaps we can uh, eat dinner someplace with him or something. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, it also looks like we uh, might be moving church services from Thursdays to Wednesdays. Really? That's interesting. Um, uh, why Why was the pastor thinking that? Uh, because uh, we're moving into this uh, like really nice community center. So, uh, let's see, I think... Do you know where Houston is on uh, 79? I do know where Houston is. I used to drive there going to church or- yeah. Back when I was in the apartment, actually. Yeah, I think that's uh, around like where Charters Township is, because we're, we will be in the Charters Township Community Center. It's like right okay. next to the right next to that high school. Um, so yeah, um, apparently it is beautiful, and uh, uh, like I think Pastor said that uh, like initially when he went in there, he asked, you know, uh, do you uh, is this place for rent? And he's like, yeah, this is a community center. It's all for rent. And uh, he's like, so um, we would like to rent out this place every Sunday. And he's like, I think you better step into my office. (laughs) And he's like, well, um, uh, so for every Sunday, like every every Sunday, it'll probably be about $300 a week. But if you're going to be here every Sunday, we might be able to get it down a little bit. And apparently, pastor's like, no, 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 no. Three hundred is good. Three hundred's great, because apparently and he didn't bargain with him if he was willing to go down some. Because like three hundred dollars is apparently a bargain compared to what we're paying now. I see. Like it cuts our uh, building budget in half, essentially. I, that's quite a bit coming down. Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, looks like all indications are, you know, good. But I don't think it'll be this week. That, that is that is good that you guys finally have a place. But you're still gonna have to do this set up tear down thing though, right? Since it's a, um, it's a community center. Yeah, yeah, sort of like what we're doing now. Uh, I believe chairs will be provided. So okay, and that really helps some then. Um, I think the they already have like a projector and sound system installed, so uh, we might be able to use those too. There you go. I think that's it for now. So uh, have a good one. You too.